In our last episode, we noted a widely held view about the McDonald murders. Namely, that McDonald's story is too implausible to be taken seriously. In this episode, we ask why. Why does Jeffrey McDonald's account of the murders strike so many people as simply not believable? One answer is that these people have a background understanding of another set of murders that happened six months earlier, namely the Manson murders. And that understanding is that the Manson murders were a singular, unrepeatable, one-of-a-kind occurrence, not the kind of thing that happens twice in six months, 3,000 miles apart. On this understanding of the Manson murders, the McDonald murders become self-explanatory. Jeffrey McDonald clearly killed his own family and then reached for the lowest hanging fruit in the garden of American popular culture. He tried to peddle the idea that the Mansons, or people like them, had murdered his family. Hence the talk of pigs, acid, and the word written in blood. The question for the historian, then, is obvious. How singular were the Manson murders? Were they, in reality, the product of one madman's dark vision? Or did they emerge from countercultural currents that ran deeper than Charles Manson? That had, indeed, brought Manson himself screaming to the surface of the popular American imagination? To hazard an answer to this question, we will need to examine both the Manson family and the 1960s counterculture. Most people familiar with either hold that the two were only superficially related. Sure, Manson and his girls looked, and much of the time talked, like hippies, but there the similarities ended. This claim is at least partly correct. The Manson family were far from being typical products of the counterculture. On the other hand, the counterculture was not as specific as many now remember it. Charles Manson, after all, was hardly the only countercultural figure preaching a murderous hatred of the establishment be they lawyers, movie stars, or Green Beret doctors, like Jeffrey McDonald. In this episode, we explore both the Manson family and the larger counterculture. First, Manson. And the wheel of destiny has turned. The survival of peace and freedom will be determined by whether the American people have the moral stamp. <laughs> Great, silent majority. Castle. Drive. <laughs> Dustin Morgan composed the music and sound design for this episode. Our cast this episode features Anias Morgan as Bernadine Dorn. You can follow us on Facebook at The Looking Glass True Crime Podcast and on Instagram at The Looking Glass underscore podcast. We will be posting season one related documents, photographs, and short essays regularly at both of these accounts. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends. We appreciate your support. By the time he managed to cobble together his surrogate family of dumpster diving, starlet slaughtering, Beatles loving lost girls, and a few boys, Charles Manson had spent most of his life in the American correctional system, where he'd honed some respectable folk singer chops and begun crafting a long con to which a clutch of pretty young suburbanites on the outside would prove fatefully vulnerable. When he arrived in Berkeley, California, in the spring of 1967, Manson had just completed a seven-year prison sentence, the tail end at Terminal Island Prison in Los Angeles County, for forging a government check. It was the summer of love in neighboring San Francisco, 
and the streets were redolent with marijuana and incense, bristling with the babble of free love and folk song. Seemingly on every corner and in every park, some charismatic dropout or other was peddling his half-baked philosophy and railing against the man. In another time and place, the innocent young might have seen a grifter like Manson coming, but in that time and place, San Francisco, in the summer of 1967, the smiling ex-con slid right into the scenery. A decade older and a world wiser than many of the idealistic young seekers among whom he found himself, Manson nevertheless wore his brown hair long, traded on the peace and love lingo of the hippies, and wandered the streets of San Francisco and the beaches of Los Angeles, wielding his guitar like a shaman's talisman, and singing his wistful songs to any free spirit willing to listen. We get a glimpse of Manson's strange allure by consulting the accounts of some of his earliest followers, almost all of whom were young women. One such woman was Lynette Fromm, later nicknamed Squeaky. Manson spotted her on Venice Beach one day in May 1967 and sniffed out her vulnerability instantly. As Fromm recalled it, the encounter was enchanted. This dark-eyed drifter, with his quick and disarming smile, swiftly sized her up, then averred, so your father kicked you out of the house, huh? He had placed a healer's hand on a hidden wound, which he had found within seconds. Squeaky's father did, indeed, leave much to be desired. He had once decided that the best medicine for his obstinate daughter was a stiff dose of the silent treatment. Fromm was only a teenager, but her father kept the stone wall up for years. The resulting injury was something for which Manson had a connoisseur's eye. He collected wounded girls like damaged dolls. He tinkered with the formula of the pain in their eyes until it began to recede beneath a rising tide of gratitude and, finally, adoration for him, their real father, their real family. This was Manson's con. It was something he took pride in, something he had studied in prison, where he'd consulted everything from Scientology tracts to Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, to the old pimps who were happy to share a bit of their street craft with an eager young apprentice. This core of conman savvy was significantly bolstered shortly after Manson left prison by a powerful new addition to his manipulative arsenal, LSD. It was in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district that Manson began experimenting with acid, and where he discovered its incredible utility in penetrating the psyches of impressionable young people. Did he figure this out all on his own? We don't know. But it should not pass unnoticed that Manson was in routine contact at this time with some of the leading researchers on the ability of LSD to facilitate mind control and of speed to induce violence in groups of people. Manson's parole officer in San Francisco was one Roger Smith, who it just so happened was also a doctoral student in the Department of Criminology at UC Berkeley, studying the convergence between drug use and violence. By late 1967, Manson was Smith's sole parolee. Smith was a self-described rock-ribbed Republican, so he and Manson were an odd couple, and yet they were close. So close that on one occasion, Smith and his wife temporarily adopted one of Manson's children. Smith also led a program called the Amphetamine Research Project out of the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, an organization secretly funded by the CIA. 
Was it a coincidence that Dr. Louis Jolyon West, the lead LSD researcher for the CIA's infamous MK Ultra program on mind control, had an office in the free clinic? Or that Manson and his girls routinely and flagrantly violated the terms of their paroles with impunity, while the ARP had, as the author Tom O'Neill puts it, something resembling police immunity baked into its very mission? You be the judge. In any event, by the summer of 1968, Manson had established a core of loyal followers, a family of sorts. He moved them out to the Spawn Movie Ranch in Chatsworth, about 30 miles north of Hollywood, Malibu, and the other parts of LA the family would frequent in order to mingle with musicians and record producers, and anyone Manson thought might pave his path to rock stardom, which he'd been trying to travel since leaving prison the previous year. George Spawn, the blind octogenarian owner of the ranch, agreed to let the family stay there in exchange for their helping out with the chores. To sweeten the deal, Manson threw in sexual favors from some of the girls, his go-to gambit for securing the services of men. It was at Spawn Ranch that Manson's preaching turned from the usual free-love, anti-establishment boilerplate to something darker, much darker. When they weren't rummaging through dumpsters for their dinner, the family members spent much of their time at the ranch dropping acid, participating in orgies, and frolicking around the site's movie sets in a perpetual state of play. Manson would use the acid trips as opportunities to excavate the psyches of his followers, uprooting whatever ethical and ontological convictions he found buried there. There was no such thing as right or wrong. Death was a liberation. Death was beautiful. Time was a sinister illusion used to control the masses. Now was the only real time. Manson would orchestrate the orgies, ensuring that everyone copulated with everyone else, and in every way. Men were ordered to have sex with other men, women with women. Even the children participated. His purpose was to ensure that no bilateral bonds could develop among members and to break down any boundaries they had inherited from their parents or society. Everyone was to be bound to the family alone. The family was all, and the family was under Charlie's control. Eventually, his followers would believe anything he said. He was the devil. He was God. He was Jesus Christ. It was no coincidence that his name was Manson. He was the son of man, come again. The Beatles were sending him secret messages through the White Album. That's right, the Beatles were sending Charlie secret messages through the White Album. The Fab Four were in fact prophesying a revolution, which Manson would lead. Pig, someone had scrawled in blood on the front door of Sharon Tate's home in Benedict Canyon. Whoever butchered Lino and Rosemary LaBianca the next night in Los Feliz, on the other side of Hollywood, had also left messages on the walls in blood. Helter Skelter on the refrigerator, Rise and Death to Pigs on the walls, and they had carved a word into Lino's belly, W-A-R, before plunging a fork into it. What could all of this possibly mean? One man, Vincent Bugliosi, claimed to have the answer. Bugliosi was the Los Angeles deputy district attorney assigned the Tate-LaBianca case in November 1969. His eventual account of the murders and their motive was stranger than any fiction. It was the story he told the jury who convicted Manson and several family members in 1971, 
and the one he immortalized in the best-selling true crime book of all time, Helter Skelter, which catapulted the deputy DA to global fame. Helter Skelter was, until quite recently, the authoritative history of the Manson murders. As we will shortly see, it was a flawed and incomplete history, but one that nevertheless contained a historical core that shaped the popular understanding of the murders, an understanding that became a historical force in its own right. According to Bugliosi, while the Tate and LaBianca murders looked like pure madness, they were not without a method. As it turned out, the bloody words scrawled across the crime scenes were references to Beatles songs, which Manson claimed were coded prophecies about the end times. Helter Skelter, according to Charlie, was about a coming race war between blacks and whites. Piggies was an epithet for the wealthy and powerful. Blackbird foretold of blacks rising up against the white establishment in the revolution designated in songs like Revolution 1 and Revolution 9. And if you listened carefully to the lyrics of Revolution 1, you could pick up the song's two messages, the one for the meek masses and the encrypted message for Manson and his followers. But when you talk about destruction, sang John Lennon, don't you know that you can count me out? And then, immediately, too quiet for the casual listener, but just loud enough for Manson, in. You can count me in when you talk about destruction. The Beatles were peddling peace to the hoi polloi, all the while winking at the family. Helter Skelter was coming down. Nothing could stop it. It got weirder. Manson claimed that after blacks won the race war, they would prove incapable of governing themselves. Pry another plank from the hippie hypothesis. Despite the peace and love shtick, Manson was a good old-fashioned white supremacist. It was in the vacuum created by black incompetence that the family would thrive, taking the reins from Blackie, as Manson put it, and ruling a new world order as the only white people around. It sounded a lot like a return to the antebellum South. The family would basically be slave masters. But before they could thrive, they needed to survive, and that wouldn't be easy as white people in a time of victorious black revolution. For this reason, once Helter Skelter kicked off, the family would flee to Death Valley, where they would ride around in dune buggies looking for a hole in the desert that led to the center of the earth, where there was, said Manson, a hidden Eden with rivers of milk and honey, a tree that grew twelve kinds of fruit, and weather that was always perfect. The sun didn't shine there, but the walls glowed, so it was nice and bright. Safe in the center of the world, the family would hide out until Helter Skelter passed, and then re-emerge to inherit their kingdom of slaves. All of this had been foretold in the Bible, Manson assured his followers. The book of Revelation prophesied a fifth angel to whom the key of the bottomless pit would be given. Manson was the fifth angel, and the bottomless pit was the hole in the desert. It would issue forth smoke, out of which locusts would emerge. The locusts were the Beatles. When the band hit in America, everyone talked about how they wore their hair long, like girls. That was right there in Revelation chapter 9. And the locusts' faces were like the faces of men, and they had hair like the hair of women. The scriptures had even foreseen the band's electric guitars, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. Manson's most loyal acolytes, and is critical to emphasize, believed all this. But by the summer of 1969, doubt, the one thing no cult can countenance, was creeping in. 
This doubt, Deputy DA Bugliosi claimed, was the context for the Tate-LaBianca slayings. The persistent failure of Helter Skelter to materialize was creating an uneasiness within the family. Was Charlie right about all this? And Manson decided that the revolution needed a kick in the pants. He therefore ordered a small group of his most trusted followers to carry out the crimes of August 9 and 10. The atrocities would shock white America, he calculated, and infuriate them when they found out who was responsible. Blackie. All that was left to do was to set him up by leaving a wallet taken from the LaBiancas in a black part of town, where it would be discovered, linked to the crimes, and then reported in the press. At that point, the pigs would lose their minds, and Helter Skelter would commence. It seemed like a foolproof plan. But there was a problem, and it was the obvious one. The family was insane, possibly even more insane than Charlie, who probably didn't believe half of what he said. And one problem with leading insane people is that they continue being insane even after they escape your supervision. Thus, Manson follower Susan Atkins, or Sexy Sadie, as Manson rechristened her, again referencing a song from the White Album, carried her exotic worldview into prison after she and other family members were arrested in October 1969 for stealing cars. They had, by then, moved out to Barker Ranch in Death Valley to begin looking for the bottomless pit. One of the arrestees informed police that Atkins was responsible for the murder of music teacher and Manson acquaintance Gary Hinman the previous July in Topanga Canyon, near Malibu. In prison, Sadie developed a fondness for two of her fellow inmates, Virginia Graham and Veronica Howard, to whom she confided that she was responsible for the murder of Sharon Tate. Graham and Howard were, of course, terrified for their lives, and Howard therefore ratted Atkins out. That was the beginning of the end of Helter Skelter. You have just heard Vincent Bugliosi's hitherto authoritative account of the Manson murders. I say hitherto because Bugliosi's version of events which has been widely regarded as gospel since Helter Skelter was originally published in 1974, recently took a serious hit. As documented in his 2019 book, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s, the journalist Tom O'Neill discovered that significant sections of Bugliosi's narrative were false and falsified, and significant sections of the actual history of the Manson murders some of them well-known to Bugliosi, were left out of Helter Skelter. Manson's CIA connections in San Francisco were a case in point, and there were other omissions. For example, the motive for the murders of August 9 and 10, 1969, appears to have been, at a minimum, more complex than the race war Manson reportedly sought to initiate. Recall that the break in the case, according to Bugliosi himself, came when Susan Atkins started speaking openly about her role in the murders to her cellmates, one of whom then informed the police. As disclosed in LAPD files O'Neill discovered, the story that Atkins told the grand jury, and that Bugliosi relayed to his readers, was different than the one she told her cellmates. In the earlier account, she had said nothing about the helter-skelter motive for the murders. O'Neill doesn't include it in his book, but he also uncovered evidence, from police reports and witness testimony, that four of the five victims at the Tate murder scene on Cielo Drive, Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, 
Abigail Folger, and Wojtek Frykowski, appear to have been targeted the previous night at Sebring's house, which was located in the same area. Someone cut the electrical cables to Sebring's home while the four were there eating dinner, just as Tex Watson would the phone lines at the Cielo Drive address the following evening. In Bugliosi's account, the family neither knew nor cared who resided at the Cielo Drive address when Manson targeted it. All that mattered was that pigs lived there, wealthy white people. Manson only knew of the address because he had been there before, when it was the residence of the record producer Terry Melcher. Bugliosi claimed that Melcher's refusal to give him a record deal led Manson to regard the producer as a symbol of the establishment that had rejected him. By extension, the Cielo Drive address became a symbol of the same. But if Tate and her friends were, in reality, targeted by killers who tracked their movements, then we must ask why. Whatever the answer is, it isn't helter-skelter. Not helter-skelter alone, in any case. All of this is fascinating and important, but we mustn't lose sight of our objective, which is understanding Manson's connection to the broader counterculture in order to determine how anomalous the Manson murders really were. In the context of that concern, we need only note what O'Neill does not deny, namely that Manson taught his followers that a race war was imminent, that the Beatles were secretly communicating with the family about it, and that the family regarded as pigs the beautiful, rich, white elites whom Hollywood and Washington put forth as representatives of the establishment. Some of these beliefs, such as the Beatles' claim, were exotic. Some, such as the violent vilification of the establishment, were fairly common, and others, such as the idea that a race war was imminent, were a mix of the two. That is, many in the counterculture hoped to launch a black uprising against imperialist white America. They just didn't think it would have anything to do with Beatles songs and Bible prophecies. On these points, even the late Bugliosi and O'Neill would be agreed. I mentioned earlier that while few today see a connection between the murderous insanity of the Manson family and the benign reality of the broader counterculture, at the time of the murders themselves, many people did see a connection. Let's briefly discuss the popular processing and understanding of the Manson murders in 1969 and after. The Tate-LaBianca slings were more than another lurid diversion for the American masses in 1969. They hit with atomic force, confirming the most primal fears of the great silent majority Richard Nixon would famously address in November 1969, three months after the murders and a month before the Los Angeles Police Department announced it had cracked the case and apprehended the culprits. As the details we have just explored make clear, Manson and his followers were not, in reality, garden-variety hippies who had taken one too many acid trips. The truth about them was bizarre, a point on which Bugliosi and O'Neill would agree. Yet, despite the fact that many of the peculiarly horrifying facts we have reviewed were mentioned in the press coverage of the Manson trial, then, as now, people did not tend to read much beyond the headlines. Nixon's great silent majority did not regard the Manson family as a freak aberration from an otherwise benign counterculture. They regarded it, on the contrary, as the logical conclusion of the counterculture, with all its disdain for authority and tradition. Make love, not war, was one generational slogan, but others better captured the spirit of the age. Never trust anyone over 30, for example, and kill the pigs 
which demonstrators chanted outside the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago before bombarding the police with cans, bottles, boards, firecrackers, tomatoes, and just about anything else they could find, as the historian Rick Perlstein has detailed. All of this was beamed into the living rooms of middle America, where everyone watched the chaos unfold on television. The resulting fear and revulsion formed a cultural vein that Richard Nixon had been mining for some time, trying to extract just the right formulation of his own creed occur to rally his base and, with any luck, enlarge it. As Pearlstein relates in his book Nixonland, Nixon at last hit his rhetorical stride with the silent majority, a term he debuted in a November 1969 televised presidential address to the nation on the topic of the Vietnam War, the issue that had everyone so exercised, the one that prompted protesters to chant, kill the pigs at police officers. Pearlstein writes of the speech's impact. 50,000 telegrams and 30,000 letters flooded into the White House praising the silent majority speech. The president displayed bales of them, put his feet up among them on his desk as if they were part of the Oval Office furniture. In an instant poll, 77% said they supported his handling of Vietnam. It had been 58% before the speech. Only 6% opposed it outright. 300 House members signed a resolution of support. The media, Nixon's perpetual bete noir, weren't buying it, but an enlarged and revitalized base was. The president juxtaposed the honest and patriotic Americans who wanted, as he would later put it, peace with honor in Vietnam, with the San Francisco demonstrators carrying signs reading lose in Vietnam. He set the rights of the great silent majority over against those of a vocal minority, however fervent in its cause to withdraw from Vietnam. In the last two months of 1969, as Pearlstein documents, Nixon's approval rating went from 50 to 80%, with 70% agreeing that anti-war protesters were harmful to public life. Nixon would later cite the coverage of the Manson trial, and particularly its tendency to glorify and to make heroes out of those who engage in criminal activities as evidence of the cultural deterioration of the country. Nixon may sound stuffy now, and he certainly did to many then, but he was not entirely at sea in issuing this critique of the 1960s counterculture and the media that often celebrated it. In his History of Liberalism, Freedom's Power, the sociologist Paul Starr makes passing reference to the occasional excesses of the otherwise golden age that was the 1960s, acknowledging, Liberals sometimes harmed their own cause by defending policies that were not working and that were politically unsustainable because they conflicted with widely shared moral values of personal responsibility. Starr continues a little further on, Many people experienced the 1960s as an abandonment and collapse of moral values, and some liberals interpreted the breach of old moral rules as meaning that there were no limits and no restraints, and that government had no business making any moral distinctions at all. Starr wasn't referring to the Manson family, but they certainly fit his description. And for Nixon's great silent majority, the family embodied the abandonment of tradition, morality, authority, and order itself. Nixon discerned this fact, as his public comment on the Manson trial revealed. But while the relationship between the counterculture and Charles Manson wasn't as straightforward as the Nixonites implied, it existed. 
Some elements of the anti-war left were not as appalled by Manson as one might, in retrospect, hope. Kill the pigs, after all, sounds a lot like an invitation to kill the pigs. And while Manson's interpretation of that commission wasn't perfectly aligned with that of the protesters chanting it, it also wasn't entirely off the mark. At an SDS weatherman gathering of several hundred student radicals in Flint, Michigan in December 1969, Weather Underground co-founder Bernadine Dorn openly delighted in the slaughter of the LaBiancas. After professing to the assembled, We're about being crazy motherfuckers and scaring the shit out of honky America. Dorn remarked of the August 10 Manson murders, Dig it. First they killed the pigs and then they ate dinner in the same room with them. Then they even shoved a fork into a victim's stomach. Wild. If this scandalized anyone at the meeting, SDS leader Mark Rudd couldn't detect it. He would later acknowledge that the gathering instantly adopted as Weathers' salute four fingers held up in the air, invoking the fork left in Sharon Tate's belly. It was Lino LaBianca's belly the family had left a fork in, not the very pregnant Sharon Tate's, although Susan Atkins considered, and then decided against, cutting Tate's baby out of her. In any case, did the details matter? The important point was that the Manson family, while by no means representative of typical hippies and anti-war protesters, was also not as utterly remote from the radical strains of late 1960s American culture as some would like to believe. No doubt Bernadine and Charlie would have parted ways on race relations, but they saw eye to eye on killing pigs. Which brings us to this episode's second topic, the broader counterculture from which Manson emerged. For many people, the thought of the 1960s counterculture, and of the hippies in particular, is bound up with associations of peace and love. For those who come to San Francisco, make sure to wear some flowers in your hair, sang Scott McKenzie wistfully. All we are saying is give peace a chance, pled John Lennon, and who could forget the touching image of a protester sliding the stem of a carnation into the barrel of a soldier's rifle outside the Pentagon during an October 1967 anti-war rally. In the midst of this warm nostalgia for the 60s, it is easy to forget that, in reality, the decade marked a dramatic surge in violent crime in the United States. This was the cause of much hand-wringing at the time. The famed historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr., for example, lamented in a 1968 essay, Why does the fabric of American civility no longer exert restraint? What now incites crazy individuals to act out their murderous dreams? What is it about the climate of this decade that suddenly encourages, that for some evidently legitimizes, the relish for hate and the resort to violence? This sounds like a condemnation of the Manson murders, but those would occur the following year. Clearly, there was a more general foreboding in the air, one perhaps best captured in Daniel Bell's influential 1972 essay, The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, wherein the author wrote of the rise of a hip drug rock culture on a popular level and the new sensibility of black mass ritual and violence in the arena of culture. 
In his magisterial study of the history of violence, The Better Angels of Our Nature, the Harvard psycholinguist Steven Pinker notes that among the reasons people tend to think that violent crime is on the rise in any given period is the pervasive reporting of violent incidents in mainstream news media. It seems as if the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but in fact, as Pinker documents, violence has been declining for centuries. The 20th century, still widely thought to have been the most violent in history, was actually the least. It's just that, thanks to modern media, people know much more about the violence occurring all around the globe than earlier generations did. One might think then, on reading his anxious musings about the violent climate of the 1960s, that Arthur Schlesinger had succumbed to his own apocalyptic delusions even as the crime rate was continuing to drop. But Schlesinger was not deluded. And while the Manson murders were perhaps the most dramatic confirmation of his forebodings, they were hardly the only confirmation. As Pinker's own statistics make clear, the 1960s bucked the downward trend of violent crime that preceded them. He writes, In the 1960s, the homicide rate in America went through the roof. Moreover, he shortly adds, the upsurge included every other category of major crime as well, including rape, assault, robbery, and theft. What caused this sudden reversal in the downward trend of violent crime? Pinker points to a few factors, one of which was a basket of traditional American values that many baby boomers decided they could safely toss out. For example, the idea that self-control was a virtue to be cultivated, rather than a vice to be eradicated. Remember Manson's teaching to his followers that time was an illusion designed to control the masses? or really, to get the masses to control themselves by getting out of bed on time, showing up to work on time, and so on. Like many other Mansonisms, this one was a countercultural hand-me-down. As Pinker relates, in the opening scene of the 1969 movie Easy Rider, Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda conspicuously toss their wristwatches into the dirt before setting off on their motorcycles to find America. Similarly, Manson banned all watches, clocks, and calendars from Spawn Ranch. Pinker continues, That same year, the first album by the band Chicago contained the lyrics, Does anybody really know what time it is? Does anybody really care? If so, I can't imagine why. Along with self-control, many in the generation that came of age in the 60s also rejected the moral primacy of the nuclear family. But, of course, the widespread acceptance of the virtue of self-restraint and the tendency of young men to marry and raise children, and thus not to continue roaming in packs of young men, both contributed significantly to the declining rate of violent crime in the decades preceding the 1960s. Apart from contributing to the sharp uptick in violent crime in these ways, the counterculture also often romanticized the criminal as a type, Perhaps the most infamous case of this misguided infatuation was the hiring of the Hells Angels biker gang to do security for the Rolling Stones show at the Altamont Speedway in California. The same Rolling Stones who, not incidentally, had written the song Street Fighting Man to celebrate the new left activist and intellectual Tariq Ali. The Altamont debacle ended with the Hells Angels stabbing an audience member and beating down the singer of Jefferson Airplane. But the flirtation with crime as a form of cultural rebellion was a broader trend, one that, by the late 1960s, had opened up the counterculture to criminal elements by providing them with a friendly environment in which to move, operate, and, above all, evade law enforcement. As the historian Richard Vinnan observes, 
Violence went with a broader culture that often celebrated rebellion even if it was not explicitly political. The outlaw was a romantic figure in the late 1960s, partly because Hollywood had finally abandoned the orthodoxy of the 1950s that criminals should not be portrayed as attractive. Cool Hand Luke, Bonnie and Clyde, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Getaway, all showed criminals as romantic figures. Indeed, Terry Robbins, one of the most influential figures within the Weather Underground leadership, adored Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, especially the final scene, in which the outlaws willingly succumbed to a hail of bullets. Robbins was known among Weather members for having a death wish, providing another parallel with Manson, of whom one family member famously said, death was Charlie's trip. In December 1969, the same month Weatherman and SDS members were openly praising Charles Manson and pondering whether it was okay to kill white babies, the sociologist Louis Yablonsky, who had spent years living among hippies in various communes, told Time magazine that criminals and psychotics had been infiltrating the hippie scene since 1967, and that there was far more violence among the hippies than most people realize. Pinker, too, writes of New York intellectuals being conned by Marxo-babble-spouting psychopaths. Big cities like New York, according to Pinker, became a symbol of the new criminality of the late 1960s. But the trend was present in smaller population centers as well, especially those that had seen surging population growth. This was true, for example, of Cumberland County, North Carolina, where Fayetteville and Fort Bragg were located, and where Jeffrey McDonald and his family were living when the murders of February 1970 occurred. Cumberland's population had, writes author Roy Parker, exploded after 1940, when it stood at about 60,000, to the point that by 1970 the county's population had surpassed 200,000. In the 1960s and 1970s, writes Parker, Fayetteville gained a reputation as a sin city, with drugs, pornography, and prostitution as major problems. Particularly notorious was the 500 block of Hay Street, in which bare-breasted dancers entertained in a neon-lit array of beer parlors during the 1970s. And while the local authorities made efforts to clean up Cumberland County's image in the 1980s, including raising the 500 block of Hay Street, even then, rates of teenage pregnancy, drug use, poverty, and violent crime were higher than the state average. Fayetteville, as Jeffrey McDonald himself would recall, was a very rough town. Let's return now to the question we began with in this episode. Were the Manson murders a chance mutation of radical American culture in the 1960s, or something more continuous with that culture? Our exploration of both the murders and the 60s counterculture would seem to suggest an answer, namely that the murders were not as singular and unrepeatable as many people would today assume. No doubt Nixon's silent majority overestimated the extent to which the hippies, anti-war activists, and other countercultural elements contributed to the chaos embodied in the Manson murders. But an honest look at the history suggests that, in retrospect, the silent majority had a point. As the Weather Underground leaders who lionized Manson demonstrate, anti-establishment bloodlust was flowing through more of the American landscape than Spawn Ranch. It was everywhere including North Carolina. In light of that fact, 
we should perhaps refrain from dismissing out of hand McDonald's tale of drug-crazed intruders, because maybe, just maybe, he was telling the truth.